Hello, and welcome to Historically Speaking, uncommon history with an unconventional pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 21 years. (laughs) Sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. and welcome to episode 11 of Historically Speaking Podcast. This is our last episode of 2020. That's kind of exciting. Uh, So the topic today is unexplained historical events. And there's a lot of unexplained historical events. But we picked, what, four or five? I think we picked five. Five. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get all through, you know, through them all. Hopefully we will. Yes. That's the plan anyway. <laughs> well, then there's no time like the present. Who are we starting out with? We're starting with uh, something very famous, uh, the Hindenburg disaster. Oh, yeah. Yes. I think um, a lot of people have heard of that. Yes. The, the Zeppelin, the airship, the Hindenburg, on May 6th, 1937, uh, in Ocean County, New Jersey, at Lakehurst, New Jersey, when docking exploded into flames and let's start at the beginning Mm -hmm. what is a zeppelin where was it built a zeppelin a zeppelin is an airship inflated either with hydrogen which is flammable or helium which is not this was this had hydrogen in it um they go back to the world war one period oh wow all the way to world war one yeah, there were Zeppelins that were flowing. Uh, were they like by... mini Zeppelins or something? Well, I don't know how many, but uh, the No, second... I mean like small ones. Oh, I will. Because aren't they humongous? <laughs> well, the Hindenburg, the Hindenburg was the largest Zeppelin ever built. Ever? Oh, I, kind of like the Titanic of Zeppelins. Yeah. And uh, a tragic fate. Like I know, the I was just thinking that. Why are we laughing? I know, that's terrible. I we know should be it ashamed. Is. We should be ashamed. I am. Okay. Yes. Well, so it's it. It was born in Germany. Yes, that's right. Uh, it was humongous. It was over eight hundred feet long, something like eight hundred and three, eight hundred and four feet. Just to put this in perspective uh, to our listeners, a seven forty seven is two hundred and fifty feet long or thereabouts. This was over eight hundred feet long, so it was three times the length of a seven forty seven. Now, the Hindenburg was constructed in 1936. It took many flights, um, many over Germany and over oh, continental Europe. Oh, so this Europe. wasn't the first flight. Oh, no, no. In fact, uh, earlier in March of 1937, it had taken a transatlantic, uh, transatlantic flight from um, Germany to Brazil and back. Uh, I th- it took something like 10 transatlantic flights uh, over its entire So it, it could cross the Atlantic without stopping. Yeah. And That's it could it could cruise it around something like seventy eight miles an hour. Wow! Yeah, it could reach a top speed of 84, 85 miles an hour. And this was luxury traveling. Oh, it definitely was luxury traveling. I mean, a one way ticket was four hundred some dollars. Wow, we're talking back in the nineteen thirties. Ah, that's right. I mean, it was hugely expensive to travel on uh, on the Hindenburg. But the Absolutely. prestige. 
Oh, Being the able prestige. to say to your friends, ooh, I'm taking a trip on the Hindenburg. Yeah, you know, all about keeping up with the Joneses and the Smithes. And, wow, know. so, okay, so who is on this particular voyage? Do we know? Well, uh, there were 97 people or something like that, about uh, 22 or more were crewmen. They were coming to New Jersey to pick up passengers, uh, many of them headed to London for the coronation of George VI. Oh, so they were coming from Germany to pick up passengers yes. to take back to London. Mm-hmm. And the Hindenburg, previous to uh, its explosion in New Jersey, had passed over Manhattan. There's a very famous picture of that just hours before its uh, demise. And it had on its tail fins the Nazi swastika. But in the 19, early 1930s, mm-hmm. what year is this exactly? 37. So does that symbol have the connotation that it grows to have? Well, not quite, but it was pretty nefarious nonetheless by 1937. So people knew if they saw that symbol, it was not necessarily a good thing. Well, some thought it was a good thing. I think they were wrong. Um, others thought it was a good thing. But this is before World War II by some two and a half, month, uh, two and a half years. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was to dock at uh, Lakehurst, New Jersey, in Ocean County, New Jersey. And it was around 7 p.m. It had been delayed by four, five, six hours because of thunderstorms and lightning and such. And so the uh, captain of the Hindenburg, Max Proust, had flown other other places off the coast of New Jersey, over New York. Just to buy time to avoid the Yeah, just to buy time. Finally, they were allowed to land... Uh, around 7 p.m. on May 6th of 1937, and everything seemed to be normal. And then all of a sudden... So the ground crew could see it at this point? Yes. Yeah, everyone could see it. Actually, if they, had been, if they hadn't been delayed by lightning and uh, other kinds of weather, they were supposed to land about four or five, six hours earlier so that people uh, there on the ground could tour the facilities, which had uh, extensive lounges that had all kinds of benefits, um, you know, beautiful little places you could sleep and such. It really was a luxury. That's why it cost $400, uh, something like $720 around away. So it's it's landing. Uh, Herbert Morrison, the radio announcer. Who's watched, on the ground. He's on the ground. He's watching this landing, and all of a sudden, it just bursts into flame. I mean, it consumed the Hindenburg there's a debate as to whether it was 28 seconds, 32 seconds, 35 seconds. Oh, yeah, it was, it was within a minute. And, uh, of course, uh, one of the most famous lines in radio history, Oh, the Humanity, right. by that Herbert Morrison. It wasn't a live broadcast. It was supposed to be broadcast the next day. They actually got it out and broadcasted it uh, later that evening. But it was a disaster. It was. But people survived. Uh, about two-thirds survived. Out of 97, 35 were killed. Although of the those who survived, many were very badly burned. Oh, I can just imagine. Including the commander, Max Proust, who heroically tried to save many individuals. He survived, but I he mean, was badly I mean, what do you burned. do? You're in the air. I mean, do you push the people off? Do you say jump? Well, some jumped from a certain height. Um, there were broken bones. Um, there were many burns. I'm surprised that 
as many people survived as as did. Especially if it went up as quickly as it did. And there had been two previous airship disasters, one in 1930, one in 1933, with a British and American airship, uh, a Zeppelin, that had actually cost more lives. So this didn't cost Do we the know most. what caused those accidents? I don't think so, no. Okay. I think there's a, a multiplicity of uh, possible causes. Sort of the same with the Hindenburg. Well, yeah. I mean, the two uh, main hypotheses about what caused it is either sabotage okay, or some kind of static electric spark that ignited the hydrogen. There are other explanations given um, electricity um, established by all kinds of lightning, a motor failure. But uh, static electricity and sabotage are the two chief Theories. possibilities, it seems. I see. And to this day, we don't know for certain what it caused it. It seems like with all the technology that we have these days, that we'd be able to figure this out. Hmm? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that answers that. Um, Do we know what happened to the wreckage? Did it go back to Germany? Did oh, it, it, was, it was... There wasn't anything left? It was completely incinerated i mean i've seen i've I seen guess by the time it hit the photos. ground oh yeah i mean it was just it was just bent and twisted melted metal and so on um it was named after paul von hindenburg the second and last president of the weimar republic joseph goebbels hitler's uh, propaganda master uh, minister uh, for those listening to us um, hitler came into power in 1933 this is 1937 goebbels wanted to name it the hitler Rather than the Hindenburg, and Hitler was grateful. Doesn't uh, have the same ring, does it? No, it doesn't. It just doesn't. And uh, and Hitler was glad that it wasn't named after him because well, because it crashed and burned. Right. right. Kind of like what he did later. Yes, he crashed and burned, and uh, did even more damage, far more damage than the Hindenburg did. Um, there's a memorial there at Lakehurst, New Jersey, to this day. Oh, there is. Yes, and um, we don't know. We still don't know. No, we still don't know. So it what is caused still an it. unsolved mystery. Yes, it is. And and one last uh, comment here: it basically destroyed the entire airship industry, other than an occasional, a symbolic airship like the Goodyear Blimp, which does carry passengers, I believe. Yeah, the airship industry was destroyed by this. Uh, well, three major accidents. Yeah, this design. Yeah, and one, then in this 30, one in thirty, one in thirty-three, one in thirty-seven. Yeah, it really did. Well, maybe um, someday someone will figure it out. Yes. There's a 1975 movie with George C. Scott that pushes the idea of sabotage, but uh, that's only one theory. Okay. It so what's was... our next unsolved mystery? Uh, the Mary Celeste. Oh, the ship. Yes, the ship. The, the sailing dis- ship, not the, the si- airship. No, not the airship. <laughs> no, no. Um, this was a sailing ship. Uh, 1872, it disappeared. Um, it disappeared. Well, I'm sorry. It did not disappear. It was found with no one on it. So it was a disappearance by the entire crew and the captain. But the ship still remained. Yes. What happened was it left uh, New York in early November of 1872. And a month later, in early December of 1872, another ship headed by a guy named David Morehouse on the Dea Grazia that was his ship, they saw the Mary Celeste that was about halfway between the Azores and Portugal. The Azores to Portugal was about 900 to 1,000 miles, and it was halfway between that in the eastern Atlantic. 
And um, he. So I was, guess he recognized the ship. He. Well, what he really recognized was that the ship wasn't moving uh, as you would think a ship would move. There was something suspicious about the way it was drifting and so on. So he and his crew moved over toward it. Uh, they boarded it. They found water in the hold. Not that much, about three feet. Obviously uh, not enough to sink the ship. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, three feet of water in the hold is you know, not a great thing, but it's not a disaster either. And the lifeboat was gone. And there were no personal possessions stolen. Oh, so everything was... Now, the ship was commanded by a man named Briggs, Benjamin Briggs, who was a very capable captain uh, by all accounts. And he was there with his wife and his uh, two-year-old daughter with eight crew members. None of them were there. And no sign of them. No sign of them. And no sign of foul play either. No sign of foul play. They were carrying some 1,700 barrels of denatured alcohol, which was not drinkable. Okay. So the idea that the crew got drunk and then killed the captain and so on, that's one of many theories, but it's been pretty much dismissed. And the Dea Grazia pulled in the Mary Celeste to Gibraltar for salvage purposes. It was determined finally that there was no foul play. The Mary Celeste, which originally was called the Amazon... It had bad luck as the Amazon. It was built in Canada, eventually owned by an American. It ended up under the command of a guy named Parker, who deliberately grounded it in Haiti for insurance purposes. Wait, this is after. This is after, yeah. And Brigantine uh, Briggs, his wife, his daughter, the eight crewmen, never heard from again. Wow, and then they left no note like, hey, no, we ran no, out of gas. nothing. The idea that uh, pirates from Morocco may have attacked it doesn't really hold water. Because nothing was taken. Nothing was taken. There were personal items there and so on. It's a mystery. They just disappeared. I mean, I have to wonder if um, Brigantine Briggs thought that the water in the hole was much greater than anticipated. And... Um, you know, required everyone to get in a lifeboat, and they were lost at sea. But who knows? It doesn't add up because Brigantine Briggs was a member of a seafaring family going back generations. So, and he not... had left a son, didn't he? Yes, he left a son back in New York. So the idea who was in school. The idea that this was done in conjunction with Morehouse, the head of the De Grazia, for insurance purposes doesn't make any sense if brigantine brings yeah nothing adds up there's no real good explanation and we just watched the movie the other night we did (laughs) not a great film but probably worth worth seeing if you're interested all right was it 1935 1936 i believe bella lugosi bella lugosi yeah the theme there is that one of the crew members kills everybody yeah revenge uh, for being thrown overboard on a previous ship right but that, who knows? Who knows? That's a theory anyway. So there's a lot of theories. Yeah. They and the Mary Celeste ship eventually ended in 1885, deliberately grounded uh, in Haiti for insurance fraud purposes. And uh, I guess once it's grounded, it's unsalvageable. Oh, it just, it just, it's just yeah. shredded. It, yeah, it's shredded and whatever. And they found out that it was deliberately done. It's uh, hard to get away with something like that, I would think. Yes, I would not recommend insurance fraud to our listeners. Yeah, probably not. At least not with a boat. No, I don't think so. But the Mary Celeste is a mystery to this day. Why was there no one on board? And nothing taken. And nothing And nothing taken. 
And a ship that was still above fairly fairly seaworthy. Water, yeah. Yeah. A little disheveled, but fairly seaworthy, yeah. All right. Well, moving right along. Well, now we come to one of the great mysteries of all time, the lost colony of Roanoke. Oh, yes. And that's not Roanoke, Virginia. No, that's... Which Ro- I sometimes have mistaken it. <laughs> no, this is Roanoke Island uh, in North Carolina. I've been to it. It's uh, a lovely place. It's wedged between the mainland and the Outer Banks. It's about eight, nine miles long. How do you long. get there? Is there a bridge? Did we take a bridge? It was back in 1986. I can't remember. I was not with you at that point. I was in probably seventh grade. I don't think it was a ferry. I think it might be a bridge there now. Oh, my gosh. That was a while ago. But it's an Mm. island. Yes. So it's either a ferry or a bridge. Yeah. And so Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, who's a very famous uh, Englishman of the 16th century, eventually executed by James I in 1616, under suspicious reasons. He got a charter from Queen Elizabeth I in 1584, and he sent out an expedition to see where he could establish a colony. They came back and said, hey, Roanoke Island. So, wait, the charter was just an open-ended, you know, wherever you find a spot, you can take it? Well, actually, uh, his half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, had gotten the charter before him, and it was passed on to him, and so they wanted to establish a colony someplace in what he called Virginia in honor of Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. And so in... So apparently she didn't mind that title. No, Elizabeth actually, on more than one occasion, prized herself as a virgin and wedded to her husband, England. Wow. Okay, um, so he's, so he's got he, the charter. He's got the charter. They do an exploration. They find Roanoke Island. So in 1585, they send out an expedition with about 100 men led by Ralph Lane. And they established themselves on Roanoke Island. By 1586, things weren't going well. Sir Francis Drake, one of the great seafarers of all time, had just been coming back from raiding Spanish galleys again. And stopped off at Roanoke Island, and Ralph Lane and his dispirited associates decided to take ship with Drake and go back to England. Shortly thereafter, about 15 men were left on Roanoke Island. They would disappear, too. And then in 1587... And it was just men at that point. Yes, it was just men at that point. Okay. In 1587, the commander of the third expedition was uh, John White. And uh, John White, in 1587, with about 115 to 125 people, this time including women and children, established themselves in Roanoke Island. Now, why, I don't understand why they would go to the same place where twice before people have just disappeared without a trace. Well, uh, Ralph Lane didn't disappear without a trace. They had a difficult time. They went back on Drake's ship. Then 15 men did disappear, but uh, they weren't sure. Uh, actually... Uh, Sir Walter Raleigh wanted them to move north into Chesapeake Bay, but they didn't. And the reasons why they didn't are specific and so on. So they stayed on Roanoke Island. They're like, we're going to make this work. We're going to make this work. And John White saw his granddaughter, Virginia Dare, born on Roanoke Island and baptized the first English person. So we have three generations on there. Yeah. And... Uh, he left his family uh, there to go back and get supplies. The grandfather. Yeah, John White. And went back to England. But he couldn't come back right away. Because at this time in English history and European history, the English and the Spanish were at loggerheads. 
1588 is the episode of the Spanish Armada. Oh, so it's not safe to cross the It's sea. not safe to cross. And so he was delayed for three years for one reason three or another. Years. Three years. And he actually ends up back on Roanoke Island on the third anniversary of his granddaughter's birth, August 18th, 1590. Wow, that's coincidental. Yeah. And there's no one there. All he found was on a tree the word Croa, C-R-O-A, and then on a fence post of the fort, Croatoan. Croatoan was a name for the island of what is now Hatteras, where Cape Hatteras is. A name used by the Native Americans. That's right. Okay. By the Algonquin uh, Indians. And we don't know what happened. So... What was the state of the settlement? I mean, was it well? Disheveled? The palisade, the palisade was still intact. Uh, the cabins were basically deconstructed. It was pretty much dishevelment all around. Uh, there was this clue, Croatoan, on on a fence post. Uh, there wasn't much there. So it had either been carried away or destroyed, or both. And they don't know what happened. They don't know if these colonists moved further north. They don't know if they... I would have thought they would have left a note. Hey, we decided to move 20 miles north. Well, Croatoan is the only thing they got. Wow, and nobody's been able to quite solve it. So, did the Indians annihilate them, uh, massacre them? Did they mix with the Indians and go off into the mainland? Did they move north and were lost at sea? We don't know. So... There were no bodies found. No, no bodies. No. no big blood spills or mm-hmm. anything that looked no. suspicious. No, it was, it was pretty much wiped away. And uh, eventually Sir Walter Raleigh would come in the 50, mid-1590s and take a look himself and so on. But uh, we don't know what happened to it. It's known as the lost colony of Roanoke. It's almost like that that little island was cursed from the beginning. Well, I've been down there. It's a beautiful island. North Carolina is a lovely state, and you can go there and find where the colony was. And the mystery persists to this day. Well, there's so many legends that have sprung up. Oh, Especially legends. with the whole Virginia Dare part well, of it. Uh, Roanoke Island is part of Dare County, North Carolina, one of 100 counties in North Carolina. And it's named after Virginia Dare, who was never heard from again. Wow, and she would have been, what, two or three years old? Yeah, when John White came back in 1590, he came back, actually uh, arrived in Roanoke Island on what would have been her third birthday. Never found her. Never found his family. Never found his daughter, his son-in-law. Never Never found any answers at all. It's a mystery to this very day. History is mysteries. There you go. Hmm. Okay, does that wrap it up, or is there anything else you want to add? No, we have two more things to cover. Next is uh, Jesus Galindo Suarez. Okay. He was born in 1915, disappeared in 1956. Wait, where was he born? He was born in northern Spain. He was a Basque national. He fought against Franco in the Spanish Civil War as a very young man. He left Spain because of Franco's victory, uh, moved to the Dominican Republic, began to work for the government there, but then became critical of the government, which was, well dangerous for him. Yeah, I guess when you start criticizing a dictator, things don't go so well for you. Yes, uh, Dominican Republic was um, run by a dictator named Trujillo from 1930 to 1961. That's a long reign. Yes, it is. Yes. 30, I mean, it's no Castro, but still. Right. Yeah, Castro lasted a long time. He was a survivor. So he's the Dominican... Uh, and then he goes to uh, New York City. He begins a Ph.D. program at Columbia. 
Um, he so also, he's already gotten his previous degrees, I guess. Yes, and he uh, he was teaching at Columbia. He was a highly intelligent individual living in Manhattan. Do we know what he was teaching? Uh, political science. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, he certainly had a lot of experience there. Well, he was writing his PhD thesis on the corruption of the Trujillo regime. Wow. <laughs> Which became very public. I guess he thought because he was in America, he was safe. Well, I don't, I don't think so completely, because in 1952, a friend of his was killed in Manhattan, and he was almost certain it was due to the Trujillo regime. He left a letter in his apartment saying, look, if I disappear, okay. And this was his friend. This was his friend, yes. And so four years later, he does disappear. He was last seen... Wait, the friend or... Well, the friend was killed in 52. Suarez is going to disappear. So we know he was killed. Well, he was killed. The question is by whom? Suarez assumed it was by the Trujillo, Trujillo. associates. Yes. But that didn't stop him from continuing his It thesis. did not. No, he was a brave man. And uh, his PhD thesis was on the corruption of the Trujillo regime in the Dominican Republic. Apparently, Trujillo tried to buy this thesis from him for $25,000, which was a lot of money back then. He sure. didn't want to sell it. And on March 12th, 1956... I mean, at that point, he realized, obviously, that he knows that I'm writing this. Yes, they knew that. And he uh, published uh, columns and so on. He published articles in newspapers he criticizing Trujillo. He, he was very vocal. He was very brave. Uh, taught uh, at Columbia going, while going for his PhD. And uh, on the evening of March 12th, 1956, he was last seen going into the subway station at 8th Avenue and 57th Street. Columbus Circle. He closed the Columbus Circle, yeah. He was never seen again. Somebody obviously visually saw him go down into the subway? That's the last reports we have, yes. And then uh, what makes this all the more mysterious is that an American named Murphy and a Dominican named De La Massa... I seem to have been co-pilots flying some individual to the Dominican Republic. Do, um, we, do we know if it was him? I mean, did they... We don't know. We don't know. Because there were other reports uh, that he was taken to a Dominican ship in New York Harbor and thrown into a boiler. That could not be confirmed. Who who Would these be like anonymous tipsters who are giving these theories? Well, apparently the FBI was involved in this. There's uh, some information to the effect that by this time Suarez was an FBI informant. For Trujillo? Uh, yeah. For, uh, no. I mean against Trujillo. Against Trujillo for the FBI. I mean, he hated Trujillo. And what seems to have occurred is he was flown to the Dominican Republic. This is the most likely explanation. Okay. And uh, killed there. I can't imagine that would have been an easy death. His body was never found. And I guess Trujillo never took responsibility saying... Oh, Trujillo actually spent money hiring an American legal firm to prove that he had nothing to do with the disappearance of Suarez. Is there any chance that might be true? Uh, pretty slim. Like maybe 2%? Yeah. And what what makes this all the more interesting is that the, the American co-pilot, Murphy, and uh, De La Massa, the Dominican co-pilot, Murphy disappeared in December of 56. And early in 57, in the Dominican Republic, uh, De La Massa was found hung in his prison cell. Why was he in prison? Do we know? 
uh, probably because he criticized uh, Trujillo or maybe because he knew too much. Oh. And uh, in fact, Trujillo would be assassinated in 1961, and one of the assassins would be uh, De La Masa's brother. Oh, wow. That comes <laughs> See, full circle. The, the plot thickens. It really does. I yes. didn't know that. I mean, you have this a rather brave individual. He's going to revenge his brother. Right. I mean, uh, the whole thing is... Um, yeah, but, but Suarez, who was only 40 years old when he disappeared, was never heard from again. His body was never found. Uh, to the credit of Columbia University, later in 1956, they awarded him a Ph.D., in absentia, which I think he deserved. Did he have a family or anything in the U.S.? Not that I know of. He might have, but I don't. I have not read about that. Okay. Mm-mm. So went down in the subway and and never seen again. Mm-mm. And so there was no ransom no. or anything like that. And it and it reached a national level. I mean, President Eisenhower addressed this issue. What did he say? He didn't know what had happened to him. Oh, I mean, that they were they were investigating happened. it. I mean, they asked uh, individuals about the possible boiler on the ship incident. Yes, we don't know. We we don't know. It's a mystery what happened to Jesus Galindo Suarez, and he was only forty. Wow, some serious foul play. We can probably assume that it's not That's, like he fell I, in the subway and got run over. Pretty unlikely. <laughs> I don't. I think there would have been evidence right. for or that. Or assume the new identity, uh, you know, as John like, Smith. Like, I'm out of here. And up Montana married and had seven kids. I think we can dismiss these possibilities. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good so. to eliminate possibilities. Yeah, so Suarez was never heard wow. from again. Mm-hmm. So I guess the lesson here is don't criticize the dictator. Well, if you don't criticize dictators, then you'll never have freedom. Man, that's a double-edged sword. you got to be willing to take that chance, I guess. Yes, you do. Freedom isn't free. It requires a lot. And I think uh, Suarez was uh, made of good stuff. It cost Yeah, because clearly he was not intimidated or he was not, didn't no. want to sell out. And if that $25,000 right. offer for his Ph.D. thesis is correct, I mean, he couldn't be... Uh, he could have easily taken that and just Yeah, he couldn't away. be dissuaded by, uh, by a certain amount of money. But he thought this was more important. Right. Huh. Fascinating. So we have one more. Oh, we do? Okay. Sorry, I thought we were done. (laughs) Uh, You want to be done? No, no, no. This is fascinating. Okay. Okay, we're going back a a long time, close to 2,000 years. This is the famous disappearance of the Roman Ninth Legion, which has led to all kinds of explanations and theories and 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 films. There's a film made in 2011 uh, called The Eagle, which is actually a pretty good film. I recommend it. Um, we'll put it in the notes. Roman legions. Okay, were, how many people are in a legion? A lot, right? Theoretically, 6,000, but there's 60 centuries, each one 100 men. Uh, so theoretically, there'd be 6,000 in a legion, but uh, no legion ever had 6,000 men uh, because of death, because of injury. Oh, so it was give or take. Right, so most legions were in the 5,000 range. Still, 40, that's a lot of folks. 45, yeah, it is. And, and legions operated... It's important for our listeners to understand that being in a particular legion carried with it a great deal of pride. And the emblem of the legion was the eagle. Of all the legions or this one in particular? Every legion. 
right. was the everybody had an eagle. Yeah. They also had their banners and their flags. And uh, for uh, military men, they will know how important that is. For well, civilians, that'd be like the, the Marines logo or something. Right. And the standards, etc. You find this in the American Civil War, etc. You don't leave your standards, your banners, your flags behind. And uh, the Legion, we don't know exactly when it was created. It seems to have been in existence as early as 90 BC in the time of Marius. Caesar may have commanded the Ninth Legion, Pompey too. As you somehow mo- they end up outside of Rome. Yes, well, there are a lot of places outside of Rome because <laughs> Rome, Rome, Rome had quite an empire. I mean, at its greatest extent... So I guess technically they weren't outside of Rome. No, they were part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, at its greatest extent under Trajan, uh, who reigned from 98 to 117, extended from northern Britain to the Persian Gulf, from Morocco to the Black Sea. That's pretty huge. Only one time in history has the entire Mediterranean been ruled by one power and that is Rome. And with respect to the Ninth Legion, it seems to have disappeared around 120 AD. This would be in the early years of And what do you mean by disappeared? It just like... It just... There's no more records. There's no more records. It just kind of vanishes, etc. So we have records of their movements up until this point. Yes, somewhere between 108 and 120 AD, but after 120 AD, it's just like it's gone. Now, there are, is there some evidence that perhaps the detachment of the Ninth Legion had patrol in what is now the Netherlands, but it's not the Ninth Legion in Toto. The great German, a 19th century German historian of ancient Rome, Theodor Mommsen, who died in 1903, he hypothesized, and I think he's most likely correct, although there's no certainty here, that this legion went into what is now Scotland to go after the native people there, like the Picts, and was destroyed. Oh, the uh, legion. Anni- annihilated. By the Picts? We, we know that part of it was decimated in the first century with the revolt by Boudicca in the 60s, but it still remained intact. But after 120, there's really no record of it. Um, there are little bits and pieces of it as far as records go after that, but they might have just been small detachments of it. So they could have just dispersed. They could have been killed. Well, I think I think Momsen, by the way, uh, Mark Twain met him when he visited Europe. Momsen was a giant. He wrote over 1,000 works on ancient history. I remember as, a, as an undergraduate studying history, Momsen was still a titan. And um, his theory, which I think is the one that's most likely correct, although not a certainty, is that this legion went into the wilds of northern Britain, what is now Scotland, and was decimated by the native people. Oh, decimated by the Picts. By the Picts, yeah. So that's his theory. That's his theory, and I think there are other theories, but I think his theory is the most likely. Why wouldn't there be any record of that? Because they were annihilated. <laughs> so not one person got away to yeah. write it down. They disappeared. And the Ninth Legion was one of the most famous legions in the Roman army. I mean, every legion had a, a reputation, and uh, they competed with one another. I mean, under Augustus, uh, the first emperor, there were over 100 legions running the empire. And the Ninth Legion was one of the more famous. And How the fact- did you get famous as a legion? Because of uh, tremendous bravery and achievement in battle. 
because you're tougher than the next guy. Oh, um, I see. Right. It's it's a guy thing. It's a guy thing. Okay. <laughs> well, I will understand it in the abstract. How about yes, that? Right. right. Kind of like the Army-Navy mm. game. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I'm not sure in our modern time a lot of people will understand that, but um, yeah. The Ninth Legion is a mystery, and uh, we know for an absolute certainty there's no mention of it after 197 AD when Septimius Severus was emperor. So it disappeared sometime in the second century and probably uh, after 120. I wonder if there was some excavation happening in Scotland, if anybody would have come across something. The standard. Well, they've the... been they've been excavating there. That they did excavate in the Netherlands, and that's where they found what many people think was a detachment of the Ninth Legion after 120, but not the Ninth Legion per se. It's a mystery. It's a mystery like the Mary Celeste. It's a mystery like uh, Suarez. It's a mystery like Roanoke, and so on. Um, but I want to figure it out. I don't know. I I must say I I do think the 2011 movie The Eagle is. Uh, is worth watching and it's based on a child story written in the 1950s by a woman about the disappearance of the ninth legion oh wow that's yeah. interesting yeah so but the ninth so legion so this is a theory about what happened or yeah does, it's a it, theory. does the movie leave you hanging it's a uh no 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 the movie doesn't leave you hanging i think it confirms uh momson's uh hypothesis Oh, I see. So it takes it takes a point of view. That it went into northern Scotland and it was annihilated by... Uh, now, was it just the Picts were in northern Scotland or were there other... Basically just the Picts. The Scots from Ireland don't arrive until centuries later. And uh, the Picts, in com- combination with the Scots, would create the modern kingdom of Scotland in the ninth century under Kenneth McAlpin. I think the date is 874 AD. That sounds about right. But don't quote me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the ninth, uh, but it's just it's it's a mystery. What happened yeah, to the really Ro- to the Roman I mean, you would ninth think legion? That something would show up somewhere. Yeah, right. And the thing about it is Roman legions. I mean, yeah, they, it's not like we're just talking even a few hundred guys. Uh, no, we're talking maybe five thousand guys, and and they were really well trained. They were disciplined. They they knew how to fight. I mean, is it possible at that point they were tired, they were hungry, they wanted to go home? They sort well, of lost their mojo. Well, the weather of Scotland can do a lot of damage in and of itself. That's true, on your psyche alone. Especially in the Highlands. And uh, who knows about guerrilla warfare, disease, famine. Uh, there's a number of things that could have adversely affected them. In fact, I just want to mention this. It was after 120 AD when Hadrian was emperor, he was emperor from 117 to 138, that he decided to build a wall in northern Britain, Hadrian's Hadrian's Wall, Wall, which basically... Now, what was the point of that wall, just to say I was here? It was, I think the point of that wall was, as tough as the Romans were, what lay north of that wall was not worth conquering, uh, was not worth the trouble. And so Hadrian's Wall, which is still intact, I've been there... I've walked along it. It's still in a wild area up in... Uh, it's pretty long, but it's obviously not as long as like, the Wall of China, but... Oh, no, no, it's not that long, but it's uh, like 120 miles or something like that. Oh, so that's a good good size. Uh, it's still mostly intact. I mean, when the Romans built stuff like roads... So it separates the very tip of Scotland? Uh, it roughly, roughly corresponds to the modern uh, English-Scottish border, not completely. 
Oh, uh, okay. But it's roughly that, and uh, most of it's still intact. Uh, I visited uh, it with my brother back in 1992, and I got to tell you, it, you feel like there's no civilization around when you're up there. It's so wild. It's it's fascinating. But there's a lot of theories to the effect that uh, Hadrian built the wall because they didn't want to conquer the rest of Britain, and perhaps the Ninth Legion being decimated was one of those reasons. Just like Augustus, after the great debacle in 9 AD, uh, decided to make the Rhine and the Danube the frontier of the Roman Empire, rather than pushing it up to the Baltic. That sounds wise. You know, you have to watch. You can't overextend yourself. Yeah, but so many people do, and that therein lies the folly. Yeah, you have to know when to quit. Which is hard for a lot of people. Yes, that uh, Bismarck did, uh, Napoleon and Hitler didn't, but that's a whole other that's episode. That's a whole other episode. Yes, <laughs> people who knew when to quit and people who didn't. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go, folks. Yeah. Uh, okay, is there anything else you want to add to this? I can't think of last, anything else. Last minute words of wisdom to end out the year? Um, no one our, to quit. This is our last uh, podcast of the year, right? It is, it is indeed. Goodbye, 2020. I will not miss you. Good riddance. The best thing about 2020 is we started a podcast. How about that? Yeah. I, this is not a year I'm going to remember uh, fondly. Mm-mm. Yeah. That's I think right. that goes for a lot of people. I think it goes for a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. Well. Is that it? Well, I'm thinking, what is next week are we going to do? Because at the end of last week's episode, we said we were going to do the Cleveland family. Eventually, well, we're going to get around to that. Well, we might. Uh, how about uh, how about historic kidnappings? Ooh, I love these mysterious ones, especially when there's no answers. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Mysterious kidnappings. Yes. All right. Well. Okay. We'll just have to uh, check in next Wednesday and find out what it is. Yes, I'll check in too. Okay, check in next Wednesday. Okay. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next year or next Wednesday, whichever comes first. All right. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past.